Welcome to Greenwood Forest, a podcast for people dreaming the impossible dream of God. Welcome to Greenwood Forest. I'm Wes Spears Newsom, and here this morning is Lauren Eford. Hey, Wes. And Stephen Stacks. Hey, Wes. We just finished a sermon series focusing on some of the last conversations that Jesus has before his trial and execution. After Jesus enters Jerusalem in something of a royal parade, the triumphal entry, he and his followers occupy the temple in Jerusalem. And Matthew's gospel tells us that he he has a series of conversations with political and religious leaders in the temple. And these are perhaps the conversations that push his opponents over the edge. And maybe that answers this question, but the sermon series began with Lauren saying, conversations with Jesus can be dangerous. What's so dangerous about Jesus? (laughs) I don't know about you, but um, I like to be comfortable. Um, I think we spend most of our lives trying to make ourselves comfortable and we get taught by our parents how to be comfortable. We try to keep our children comfortable and Jesus makes me uncomfortable a lot. Um, Jesus invites us into um, making decisions that we might not otherwise make, right? And challenges our assumptions about how we are to be in the world. Um, Jesus has says pick up your cross and follow after me and um that's dangerous um jesus obviously got killed for that um and i think it's dangerous to be invited into a way of life that invites you to change um who you are and what you care about yeah i think um whenever i think of a a good concise summary of of the message that jesus is preaching it's repent for the kingdom is nigh and the first word of that is the word that none of us want to hear right <laughs> which is repent you got it you have to assess turn around and walk a different direction change change your life and uh i think that's that's part of what makes conversation with jesus dangerous is that you your um construction of of yourself your the life you've you've built that you're comfortable with will have to change when you encounter Jesus but you know there's an even more material danger uh with having conversations with Jesus and that is the change that you will take on as a result of that conversation might actually get you in literal danger and trouble <laughs> uh which is what happens to Jesus of course because yeah, that's something we don't especially in the United States, always associated with church. Mm-hmm. His church doesn't seem to be a particularly dangerous activity, but it's, it's dangerous because it gets at that core of who we are. Mm-hmm. Like, when you, when you talk to Jesus, Jesus doesn't... Like, I don't get the feeling that Jesus would have done small talk very well. Like, would have kind <laughs> of gotten right to, the, right to the chase and talked about what matters. Um, and one of the ways I think Jesus does that, that we see Jesus do that, and we saw Jesus do in the sermon series, is through parables. That over half the sermons in the series were about parables that Jesus tells. And when we think about 
parables. I think these weren't ones we preached on, but think about the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the, the lost sheep, all these things are some of the most memorable passages in the Gospels. What do you think it is after spent such time reading these parables what is it that you think makes them so enduring and powerful and why why jesus pick that way to talk mm. i mean i think uh, one of the things is that you know sociologists and people who study anthropologists who study human beings say that story and narrative is one of the most fundamental ways that we uh make meaning and and kind of group together and and live our lives based on story um and so in all cultures you can find story at the root of the way they construct their identity right so that in in one sense it's just because they're stories um and they're good stories uh that they've endured um but i think on another level it's also that jesus knows his audience and uh they're not just stories they're all they're stories that speak to the people he's talking to directly um and then you know always with a story there's there's so many layers uh that you can dig into and interpret in different ways there's different characters to latch on to to see yourself in and so you know in all those ways it makes them really rich and ripe for um our interpretation and making meaning in our in our world it's easier to ignore a command, right, or a lecture, um, but when you hear a story, you're invited to see yourself in it and become a part of it, right, um, and to change, right, to be let the story be dynamic in your life um, and see how God is interacting with you, too. Yeah, there's, I think there's like this, there's almost this Trojan horse aspect to like telling a story that like you can start telling this story and it isn't until about three quarters of the way through people realize what you're actually talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a way to, I think, Jesus used to like bring us into this, this world that he's living in and introduce a concept that you may have not wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. But because you've both entered into the story and you're like kind of on the edge of your seat listening to the story, suddenly you're maybe more willing to talk about it or at least he's got you there now. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, I think another cool thing about story and parable is that um, when you just make a commandment or pronouncement about some issue, uh, you know, in the theoretical realm, right, it tends to divide people uh, more than it more than it unites people, right? Because you've just made a commandment. Some people are in, some people are out. Some people can do it, some people can't. I mean, that's typically what happens. Um, but with story, uh, you know, everyone is drawn into it, and there there is going to be a moment of reckoning in the story, right? But it's it's relational in that it, you see yourself in the story and you're drawn into it and then rather than approaching it from the issue down you're approaching it from the person up right Mm -hmm. um one of the cool things that happened during this sermon series is that we had our discipleship retreat halfway through um and we had uh, jerry weber who um is the director of the center for christian spirituality out in houston come and talk to us and one of the things he did was uh give us a cool way to think about parables. He was talking about parable the sower, but not trying to decide who is who, you know, which group of people is 
uh, you know, is, is this person in the parable and, and who is this person in the parable, but kind of seeing all of the characters and aspects of the story in yourself and deciding when you are the rocky soil and when you are the fertile soil and then working on yourself. Uh, and so that, that lens, what he called a unitive lens rather than a dualistic lens, um, can be brought to any parable and, and can be brought to the, the wedding banquet parable that, that we read, you know, when am I the person who's dressed properly? Mm-hmm. When am I the, the person on the B list? When am I the, the initial person who refused the invitation? Right. Or if you're talking about like the parable of the vineyard where the, the, mass, the lord of the vineyard or whatever sends these repeated servants to the vineyard to collect his dues and the people running the vineyard kill the servants and they end up killing the lord's son like we are at both times you're saying like the the servants who go and the the people who kill like that part those parts commingle in all of us that we all have that capability for rejecting and accepting mm-hmm. god and god's work in the world it's a much more powerful way to kind of not let these stories be divisive but help help you get beyond what can be like a dividing into camps and to see yourself and work and kind of work your side of the street as Jerry Weber put it. <laughs> well, Jesus knew something that preachers know, right? Which is like you can ask somebody what they think about illegal immigration or you can tell them a story um, about an immigrant and have them get to know that person and what it means and how they might be empathetic towards them and how they might treat them like Jesus would treat them, right? Uh, so a s- story in that way invites people into seeing them as God's child instead of asking them what they think about a certain issue. Yeah, it's like you can talk to somebody all you want about walls and laws and all this, but you hear the story, like, for example, that's come out this week about the little girl named Rosa who's mm. 10 years old and has cerebral palsy and ice followed the ambulance that was taking her to the hospital and they have taken her away and um, like are keeping her away from her family and to, to hear that story to hear Rose's story puts a, a whole different light on the immigration conversation than, than just talking about immigration mm-hmm. right when you, when you reduce it to numbers and figures and theory uh, you know everybody can form an opinion in that space about what they think about illegal immigration but when you're uh, confronted with a person and a story I think most people would understand that there's little compassion in what's happening mm-hmm. in that situation um, and then that's, that's where a story is powerful in, in its way of uh, making you rethink those things you've decided in theory uh, but haven't Um, been able to come to grips with when faced with a real person in a real story. So on October 1st, after we'd left worship in the morning, the worst shooting in American history took place in Las Vegas, Las Vegas, Nevada that night. Um, It's kind of surreal that we've already stopped talking about this. I I see a tweet maybe every day where somebody's like, hold on a second, 
why have we stopped talking about this? Because it hasn't even, at the time of recording this, it hasn't even been a month yet. It's about a month. Um, but 59 people, including the shooter, were killed, and 546 people were injured. Um, that's over 600 casualties in a single shooting by one person. Um, Lauren, you said in the, the following Sunday in a sermon addressing violence. In the aftermath of the mass shooting in Las Vegas, we are reminded what the values of power, control, wealth, domination, and violence lead to. We are reminded that a culture of people who live in isolation from the very ones that they love, a culture that is steeped in violence and aggression, a culture that needs to pay more serious attention to mental health needs, is a culture capable of producing terrorists. So what, what is it about our, our culture that, that we are either so numb to violence or fascinated by it? What's going on? Yeah, easy questions for us this, this time. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, one of the most interesting things I uh, encountered in the aftermath of the Las Vegas shooting was uh, someone who's a specialist in post-traumatic stress uh, talking about how we, you can see the symptoms of national collective post uh, PTSD. Mm -hmm. Um, in our reaction to these mass shootings. Because um, they have a pattern now, right? Yeah. In the same way that you, that you can notice these symptoms in a soldier returning from war, um, you can notice them on a, on a national scale in our responses to, to these, especially in the apathy, mm -hmm. uh, the, num the, the numbness that you mentioned um, that sets in so quickly. It's a defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, because the only way to absorb over and over again the, the level of trauma and tragedy that, that happens in these is to, is to shut yourself down uh, and not let it in, which we can see happening on, on a national scale. Every time someone says, let's not talk about this now, um, they don't really mean let's grieve. Mm -hmm. That's not really what they mean. What they're trying to do is shut down the conversation because it's too hard to talk about. Um, but, you know, as, as you said in your sermon, Lauren, radical vulnerability is the only way forward here. We're not going to get to any different scenario without opening ourselves up to the pain of it, right, before we can, we can move past it. I just think about how pervasive violences, right, in our culture and how in order to even step outside of it and to recognize how pervasive it is, we have to like completely, you know, take ourselves out of it. And, and how do you do that, right? So I think about, you know, from the level of like having a small child and what kind of violence are we seeing on television, what kind of violence we're we seeing on our commercials, what kind of violence are people partic participating in by playing video games, um, you know, I, I think a lot about what I think about that, and then I think as a parent, what am I going to actually do about that? Um, and how are you going to keep your kid from, you know, playing violent video games when they go to somebody else's house? Um, one of the most disturbing things that happened to me um, after the shooting was uh, going to a uh, pumpkin patch <laughs> um, 
and seeing some uh, little boys, two little boys playing with their mom and their dad on a playground, and they were all um, making machine gun sounds at one another. And I just stood there, like, next to this corn pit, thinking, oh my gosh, like, where, where am I that, like, this is a game and that no one is, like, you're just allowing your children to play in this way and you're, this is play? Um, and what happens when my kid looks over and sees you doing this um, and how it just seems so normal to them? And I just, I, I, was, I felt so disturbed. I'm like, I have to get away. Like, I have to get away. I have to get my kid out of the corn pit. Like, I have to get away. Um, but to think about, like, all the ways in which, um, yeah, we do, like, have a defense mechanism. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I think about it. And when this mass shooting happened in Las Vegas, I think, okay, I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to go to a movie theater. I don't want to go to a mall. I don't want to go to the fair. Um, I don't want to be anywhere in a big crowd of people because I don't want to send my kid to public school. Um, but then if we kept thinking about that every day as we should, then we might not even get up and like go to work in the morning or send our kid to school. (laughs) Um, so like I understand, you know, I have a lot of empathy around the fact that we want to forget about it. Right. Um, because how do we live and how do we survive? Um, but it is a tragedy, right? That we are not talking about this anymore and that we can continue to go on and numb ourselves and it's never going to stop. Um, until we're actually vulnerable enough to have a conversation with ourselves, uh, with our neighbor, um, with the people who make the culture possible in which guns are everywhere and there's, you know, no one even thinks twice about it anymore. I mean, one, one of the things that comes up to me in this conversation, and I think the reason it's so hard to address this and the culture of violence is so pervasive and enduring is that one of our culture's one of our national myths one of our culture's greatest truths is the myth of redemptive violence our nation exists because of the revolutionary war right that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun Mm -hmm. this it's in every story we tell exactly every superhero movie that comes out is about redemptive violence yes every sci-fi movie every fantasy movie every thriller every yeah. every action movie is about violence being used to save the world right and our it's it's a it's such a fundamental we believe it with our every bone in our body without even thinking about it mm-hmm. um and so because of these stories that we are inundated with from the time we're born mm-hmm. right that this is the only way to stop pick your enemy mm-hmm. um you know, if they're bent on destroying you, that the only way to stop them is with good violence. Mm-hmm. And as Christians, we really have to think our entire the story of the Gospels is the opposite of that, mm-hmm. the literal opposite. Um, and I don't think people have uh, Christians in this country have come to grips with that. Well, I also think that people think, oh, well, Jesus was a pacifist. Uh, what is that really going to do? Like, that Jesus meant doing nothing, right? And just sitting there and taking something and getting hurt and harmed. Well, no, actually, Jesus would not be necessarily about that, right? Yes, Jesus was nonviolent, but Jesus also had creative ways to resist violence, right? There is actually um, a different story that we're invited into, and we've actually kind of watered 
the Christian story down, right? And made Jesus into somebody who doesn't have any power um, or have any agency and that we don't have any agency if we choose to like follow in the way of Jesus, right? But no, Jesus invited us to resist violence creatively. And what might it mean to resist gun violence creatively in our country? Like how might we be called together not to just stand up and say, let's be peaceful, right? Um, but to be creative in the way that we approached um, that violence. Yeah, I mean, but even the premise of that critique is weird to me because when you ask, when you say, "Well, what is it going to do to be right. to be like Jesus right. and be nonviolent?" Right. <laughs> it's like, well, if you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus's nonviolent death on the cross did something. Right. You believe it saved the world. Exactly. Right. You believe that the way Jesus died and was raised saved the world, right. literally, and the world is turned upside down by it and by the movement that it created. So it's weird to me that, oh, yeah. that Christians can even ask that question. Mm-hmm. Or do, so do you really believe right. that the it, cross did anything? Exactly. The, the, I mean, to me, it reveals a, a poor theology of the cross, right? It, it reveals that we don't actually think it, that the way of Jesus is what saves but that we think some kind of transaction between Jesus and God on the cross is what saves, right. and it has nothing to do with the nonviolent way that led to the cross. Right. Right. Um, and that's, to me, where the, the rub is there. Um, if you believe that, well, Jesus just had to die to pay for our sins right. because God was mad about our sins, and Jesus' death pacifies an angry God and a violent God, Um, If that's what you believe happens on the cross, then that doesn't question violence because God's the one inflicting it on Jesus. But I think that's an unfaithful interpretation of the gospel. So I haven't always thought this way about violence. And and I'd wager that's true for both of you as well. Um, I remember that one of my most visceral memories that has stuck with me was leaving church in late March 2003 in going out to a restaurant and they had the news on in the restaurant and just a few days before that it was on March 19th or the 20th the United States invaded Iraq and it began out with a protracted bombing campaign so on the on the TV and and I went when I was thinking about the story I went on YouTube and looked this up and it's still on there you can go watch it Um, that this was televised live were these grainy green and black night vision tapes of American bombers and what they called shock and awe campaign, um, just dropping bombs all over Iraq. There were explosions everywhere, plumes of smoke rising from the buildings. and, And after a minute, I realized that there were people dying in those buildings. Live on television, there were people dying. Um, in what was happening. So I, I prayed the, the sinner's prayer when I was much younger. Um, but that was the day, I think, that I was converted to Jesus' teaching on nonviolence. Mm-hmm. I remember in the years afterward at the church that I grew up in talking about how that wasn't okay and that wasn't in line with Jesus' teaching and people looking at me like I had two heads. Mm-hmm. Um, But most people who've come around to this way of thinking on violence have some sort of story of how they got there. And I was wondering if you'd like to share what that was like for you. 
it's so contrary, right? I mean, the, to the things that you were taught as a child, to love your neighbor, <laughs> to love God and to love your neighbor. And I don't get how loving your neighbor is killing them <laughs> in any sense of, of, the, of, the, of what you're talking about, right? So how these same people, right, who taught you to love Jesus and to love your neighbor are the same people who are okay with this kind of stuff happening, right? And I, there's just a contradiction there for me. I don't, I don't have a specific moment um, of when I was converted to that. I do, I have a vivid memory of uh, watching the television in 2011 when um, we killed Osama bin Laden and it was uh, just plastered all over the television with people cheering. Um, I remember watching the news go to different like uh, places of people who were watching this happen um, and the screams and shouts of joy you know, and the tabloids are like, we got him, um, you know, and thinking, I understand that, that people were relieved by that even, right? But to cheer for it, yeah. um, to be excited about somebody else's death, um, and, to, and to have Christians um, and people who um, taught me the love of Jesus to be cheering about it, right? It's... It's so contradictory to what we're called to be. Yeah, I distinctly remember a, a, a sickening kind of feeling in the pit of my stomach uh, when that same the Osama bin Laden coverage was was happening, and the kind of glee that mm -hmm. people felt after that was just shocking to me. Um, and it's it's one of those moments where you you can't articulate maybe. Um, what you're feeling, but you know, like something is not right. This something's not right about this. One of the profound experiences I had in seminary was I went to seminary with a lot of veterans, mm. um, veterans primarily of the Afghan and Iraqi wars. And it's funny because Duke Divinity School is known as a place where the teachings of nonviolence are very prominent. Um, so it was fascinating to me that I went to seminary with so many veterans. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that they talked about was the way that the violence of war inflicts what they called moral injury on them. Mm -hmm. um, that there was so much trauma associated with that, that our country was asking of them, mm -hmm. not thinking about what it costs soldiers to ask violence of them in that capacity. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about nonviolence, I think there's this knee-jerk reaction to think that to talk about nonviolence in a serious way is to disrespect mm -hmm. members of the armed forces in the United States. Mm -hmm. But we need to talk about nonviolence when we're talking about veterans because veterans too often come home from these wars where they're asked to do violence on behalf of us and then they're not taken care of and then they're, they're left with these experiences of violence and no way to cope with them and no way to confront them and no way to, um, to deal with them in any way. And they're um, expected to be nonviolent yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. Right? So they often become the victim more than anybody, right? Yeah, well, one of the things that, I think this is true, and it's been true in my experience, but one of the things that um, 
uh, writer and pastor Brian Zahn says about, uh, who's written a lot about nonviolence, uh, one of the things he says um, in his most recent book is that he has found veterans far more ready and willing to engage critically on this topic than anyone else. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's the other people in his congregation that, that don't want to broach this subject. But it's veterans who have actually experienced the effects on them and on everyone else of violence, real violence and the effects of it, who are willing to engage this topic more readily than others. That's not true of everyone, obviously, but um, I've found that the veterans in our congregation are overall more willing to, to, to say, hey, you talked about this. I want to talk to you about it right. sometime. You know. Well, they need to talk about it, right? right? They need right. to reflect upon what that's meant to them in the past and what it means for them now. Right, as, as followers of Christ, right? Um, and I think uh, the, the tragedy here is that we try to sweep it under the rug, and that's what leads to uh, you know, veterans coming back with this trauma and our unwillingness or ap apathy towards what's happening, or it could also be this defense mechanism that we've been talking about, um, where we uh, don't engage with their pain because it would lead to us having a much more vulnerable and deeper conversation about our whole lives and the myths we've constructed mm -hmm. uh, that, that we believe about our world, you know. We would have to take a lot of things into consideration and make some changes. Mm -hmm. So I messed with this conversation with Jesus are dangerous. <laughs> 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 So one of the things I've loved about these stories is the way that Jesus has interacted with the different types of people who have come and talked to him. In this, in the whole of these chapters, you see everybody from Pharisees to scribes to lawyers to Sadducees to Herodians to everybody in between who are all these diverse and competing kind of almost political parties yeah, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. coming to Jesus and trying to get Jesus on their side mm -hmm. um, in some way or some way to provoke him um, but he refuses to kind of cast his lot with any of these sides that come to him. Why do you think Jesus is doing that? Is he trying to be, like, politically correct? <laughs> is he trying to be neutral? Like, is he trying to be objective, or is it something Is it something else? I don't think Jesus would make a very good politician uh, or a very good pastor, right? Or he may make a great pastor. He just wouldn't last very long in a church. Um, because no, like he's not trying to be neutral or fair, um, or give anybody a bone, right? He's trying to call everybody out, um, and not, and have them all question what they're really, where they're really coming from, what, who, what they're really about, um, and to call them into a different way. Yeah. I just, I love these interactions because it's just, it's one of the things I love most about Jesus is that people ask him a question and he never answers it directly. <laughs> he takes it in, in a direction they did not want to go. And, and then he just puts people up against a wall where it's like the place he goes to is beyond where they were imagining the conversation going. And, and just it's, uh, it makes you say, well, 
I guess, you know, like you said in your last week's sermon, it's a place of either decision or indecision, but both have consequences, right? Um, So I see these passages, you know, on a number of levels. First is that Jesus knows what they're doing, and he's too smart to fall into their traps, right? So that each person comes is trying to get him to to say something that will incriminate himself uh, or piss off the other group or this group, right? So he's so they're they're trying to it's all they're all gotcha questions on some level and Jesus is just not playing the game, um, but he's not just dismissing the questions. He sees through the questions, sees to the con, the concern or the problem, the the root of the question, the 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 malformation that is at the root of the question, right? And so he and he takes them there, right? Um, which is is just incredible. Uh, I think that's one of the greatest things we can learn from Jesus and the kind of moment we're living in right now. Mm-hmm. Like where there's a Republican and a Democratic position on everything, like whether what food and what restaurant you go to, you might as well have like a partisan justification for it. <laughs> right. Like in in that kind of world, Jesus would step in and say, "Nah, I'm not really." bothering with the ways that you kind of identify with groups mm-hmm. over identifying with what's right. Yeah. That Jesus is primarily concerned with about what's right and who's being hurt and who needs healing and who needs freedom, not what group is winning right, right. now. Well, but he, he refuses to be contained mm-hmm. by their categories, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think that's a temptation as a Christian, as a pastor, as a minister, is to be contained into a category on, and particularly with politics, right? Um, and we cannot be contained by our categories. We have to be in another category. <laughs> yeah, and, and by refusing those categories and by refusing partisanship, it's not as if Jesus is saying, think what you want, do what you want, agree right. to disagree, right? Um, it's that he's, he's forming his own party that is centered around giving to God what is God's, that is centered around, uh, you know, offering your whole life uh, in praise to God alone. Um, and, and that goes beyond what any two parties think of X or Y issue. Um, and it, it, it puts both of those, you know, whether you're going to be in this camp or this camp into a difficult place because you have to decide where your ultimate loyalties lie and how that overrides whatever other partisan ideology you've, you've you know, applied to other sectors of your life. So we started to, to bleed into this passage that you're referencing there, mm-hmm. Stephen, where the passage you preached on sees the Pharisees in an organization, a religious organization, when Jesus' time that was very intent on Jewish law and was very emphatic about it and wasn't always so enthusiastic about the occupying Roman government. Mm -hmm. They come with a group that Matthew calls the Herodians, who are supporters of the king in Jerusalem who was installed by the Romans. I I guess we would assume they're staunch supporters of the Romans. (laughs) Um, So we've got these Pharisees and these Herodians, these Romans and these anti-Romans, come to Jesus to try and trick him with a question. Mm -hmm. And they ask him, should you pay taxes? (laughs) (laughs) And Jesus gives him that famous answer, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. 
And in your sermon, you talked about how this is a lot more than taxes. Yeah. Why is this about more than taxes? Yeah, I think, you know, the temptation here is to try and um, read this on the surface and then try to make some uh, trite pronouncement about, <laughs> about whether or not you should pay taxes to the, to the you know, U.S. government, um, which I think misses the entire point of this passage. You know, one of the things I said in the sermon is that this is not just about taxes in general. Um, it's about a specific tax. So, you know, this is about the Roman tribute tax that they imposed on lands that they conquered. So it, they're poking um, a sore spot for the people, especially the people of Jesus' hometown, um, because they were poor and they uh, were devastated by this tax. Um, and they know the people of Galilee are notorious for opposing this tax. Um, you know, I, one of the things I mentioned in the sermon but didn't go into is that there is a major tax revolt right around the time Jesus is born led by Judas the Galilean. A bunch of people from Galilee got riled up about this tax and started a revolt against the Romans over this tax. And, I mean, if you think that Jesus didn't hear this story growing up, I don't know what world you're living in because this is from people from his hometown. So, of course, they tell this story. Um, of, of these people, you know, resisting and revolting against the Romans for this unjust tax. And yeah. So what, would, what was the result of that tax revolt? So, I mean, one of the stories that's told, and I, um, I'm trying to remember if this is about that same, there are many revolts over this tax, <laughs> but one of the stories that's told of one of the revolts is that um, the, uh, this group of um, Jews is revolting against the Romans. The Romans send uh, a general uh, to, you know, to kind of squelch the rebellion. And this group of Jews uh, lays down when they're faced with the Roman military and exposes their necks and say, we'd rather die than not give all of our allegiance to God. And the Romans don't know what to do with this. So the general doesn't do anything. And then... Um, the order comes down from the emperor for that general to be executed, but the emperor dies before the, the order gets there. I mean, it's a crazy story, right? Um, but again, there's a picture of this kind of finding a creative way, yeah. right? But risking yourself to find a creative way. Um, but I think what's fascinating about Jesus' answer in this passage, render unto Caesar and render unto God, um, is that we often stop at the first half and assume that that's the thing that Jesus, that's the answer to the question. Well, Jesus, Jesus is clearly saying, uh, you know, I don't care, pay the tax. Um, but Jesus said there are two parts to what he said. Render unto Caesar and, or but, mm. render unto God what is God's. And if you know Jesus, you know that he doesn't believe in divided loyalties. He just said it a few chapters ago. You know, he can't serve two masters. What Jesus is saying here all hinges on the second half of that. Give to God what is God's. And the, the natural question that he's hoping his listeners will ask is, hmm, well, what is God's? And a faithful Jew would say, all things, all creation, me, my very person. Um, so it, one of the things I didn't address is that there is a sense that Jesus, you know, he he asks someone, give me the coin. Um, I don't think he cares that much about Roman currency 
or that he invests that much importance in money at all. And that puts us in a weird place already. Um, what does it mean that Jesus is kind of dismissing the question altogether, um, but then takes it to a place that they don't want to go and says, give to God what is God's, right? And to me, that um, is quite clearly calling us to say, everything is God's. So how do we live in a world where Caesar demands our loyalty in certain ways um, while trying to give everything to God? So one of, one of the things we talked about, I know, in the wake of that passage was it's really easy to talk about, to try and like draw a straight analog for who Caesar is mm-hmm. and like what Caesar is in our lives. But you were insistent in the sermon that Caesar is not just the IRS. Like, as much as this isn't about taxes, it's also not just about our relationship with ruling authorities. church and state. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this is as much about the relationship we have with any of the kind of authorities in our world, whether those are um, kind of corporate authorities, like um, economic authorities, whether they're kind of the cultural authorities in our lives, like what organizations we affiliate with, what... Whatever has a demand on our life that is not God mm. is Caesar. Yeah. And we, we only owe to it what we owe to Caesar. And if we owe God everything, we, we certainly owe nothing to these other Caesars in our lives as well. Mm. Yeah, one of, the, one of the great quotes about this passage is from Dorothy Day when she says, if you give to God what is God's, there's nothing left for Caesar. Um, and I think that is the stance that Jesus is, is advocating for. Um, is not that you should, should not approach the question from the other side and say, well, how much can I give to Caesar, you know, and still give to God? Uh, and, you know, how can, I, how can I divide myself into these two parts? Um, but the question is, how do I give everything to God? What is that? What are the implications for my life? And so I did want to say, the typical way of approaching this passage is to talk about church and state. But can we go beyond that and think of what the other Caesars, and there may be more than one other, one Caesar, you may have three or four Caesars in your life. What is this Caesar, what is my loyalty to this Caesar doing to what I'm giving to God? And is there a way to flip this on its head and say, as a Christian, I give everything to God and then how does that change my interactions with the Caesars in my life? That's a really daunting question, right? And it sounds like it could be a really great stewardship sermon. (laughs) Um, You know, because we often think about the way that we interact with church as, you know, what do I have left over, right? What did I, what money did I not spend? What money do I have left over that I can give to God? Um, What time do I have left over that I can give to God, Right. Um, do I have time to show up to worship this week? Do I have time uh, to read the Bible? Do I, you know, it's all about some, it's all about whatever scarce thing is left over, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if we gave everything to God, I mean, it's a challenging word uh, for our lives. Uh, where do our loyalties truly lie? And you could do an inventory to, to answer the question. Look at what you spend your money on. That's an easy enough way. Um, you know, 
just look at your look at your bill or your bank statement from the last month and tally up where you spent your money and you know the conventional wisdom is a third of it should be on your housing <laughs> uh, you know some should go into savings and your retirement and you know you know you can go down the line but the question um, is where is where is God in that uh, you know, it, even beyond what you give to the church. I mean, that's a, that's a baseline. Jesus assumes the tithe. Right. <laughs> Jesus is assuming that everyone is tithing. Um, so if you're, not even, if you're not tithing, that's already Jesus's, you know, uh, the conversation with Jesus is getting dangerous there. Um, but going beyond that, like, you know, where else are you spending your money? And what does it say about where your loyalties lie? Yeah, and I think, like, it's important to, like, be clear. Like, we're, we're ministers. We work at a church. But this is not some, like, fundraising pitch yeah. to you. Like, this is not, like, an effort to try and guilt anyone into giving more money to the church. But we're, we're asking for far more than that, actually. Yeah. Like, we're asking for all of us, like, ourselves included, to orient our lives so that we are primarily invested, if you will, in what God is doing in the world. That it's not about raising the money to pay for a building or to pay for the heat in the air, but that money will goes to pay to, to come alongside God's mission in the world that we should all be investing our money and our time and our resources in what God is doing in the world. And like everyone, regardless if you're at our church, if you're at another church, you should be invested in making sure that your church is changing the world into something that God wants the world to look like. And you should dedicate your time and you should dedicate your resources to making that happen. Not because it's another thing kind of on the checklist, but because you're actively engaged in what God is asking of you and what God wants in the world. Yeah. Well, and really practically, like the resources that you pay for, like the Mm -hmm. house that you pay for, the food Mm -hmm. that you pay for, like how are you using that house? What do you do with that house? Who comes in that house? Who do you eat that food that you pay for with? How do you eat that food? Um, Alone in your car? Uh, with someone you don't know? I mean, those are really practical questions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're not saying that you should stop paying your mortgage. The question is, since you're dedicating that much of your resources to that, how can that be giving to God, right? Mm-hmm. How can you use your home mm-hmm. um, if you're going to pay for pay for your mortgage? Right. That's a decision I, you make. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think that what, what Wes is bringing up is really interesting that, that this is... I don't think Jesus asked us this question, and I don't think we should think of it as because it's right or wrong, mm-hmm. necessarily. I think what we need to be thinking about is um, what, again, the exciting vision that God casts of what the world can be, and that we are invited into that, um, that is where we should be thinking about, that. that is what our, we're giving our time and our money and our resources to and our energy to. Not just because, well, I guess i got to give money to the church. I feel bad about it. No, no, no. It's, it's about the ca- catching the vision of what God is doing and being a part of it. And to, you know, if you're unconvinced, I would ask you, does your life feel 
like it is full of purpose and excitement and vision and abundance the way that you're currently living and constructing your time and your resources. And if not, God invites you into a different way where that abundance is realized. Because Jesus isn't just inviting us, right, into like a social club. Jesus isn't just inviting us into a nice place where we can get childcare and, and hang out with other folks. Jesus isn't just inviting us to a place where we can have lunch and be entertained. Like, all of those things, none of those things are, like, bad. Like, none of those things are bad things. But Jesus is calling us to a different world that where, he says in Luke, he has been called to come to preach good news to the poor, to set the captives free, to give sight to the blind. Like, this is a radically different vision of the world than the one that we live in. And when we're talking about giving to God what is God's, we're talking about giving to that vision of the world. Mm-hmm. Not Investing just, in that vision. Yes. Living into that vision. Exactly. Yeah. Because we often, by looking at the world around us, think certain things are impossible. Mm-hmm. When in fact, the message of Jesus is that they are possible. Mm-hmm. And that Jesus gives us a way to do that. Um, I thought the example, Lauren, that you used in your sermon this past week was particularly poignant to that, to that point. That um, what was thought to be impossible became possible. You told the story of John Fife, who's a Presbyterian minister um, and who in the 1980s was a Southside Presbyterian church in Arizona. And during the 1980s, there were a lot of particularly violent and vicious conflicts going on in Latin America. And that led to, from multiple countries, like hundreds of refugees pouring over our southern border looking to escape death squads and execution and political reprisal and in death um, and the United States government was not allowing them uh, the status of political asylum they were labeling them as economic migrants um, so that they could not claim asylum and stay here so they were deporting them back to their countries And what John Fife and his church decided to do living on the border in Arizona was they created an underground railroad of sorts for Latin American refugees. And eventually the decidedly illegal activities that they were engaging in led the United States government to reconsider the political asylum of all of these refugees. And many of them gained residents in this country they gained political asylum and what was impossible became possible mm-hmm. um, what I was reminded of in conjunction with Stephen's sermon about giving unto Caesar and giving unto God and the discussion we just had was we are often feel constrained by the way that things are but Martin Luther King Jr. told us mm-hmm. that that's no reason mm-hmm. to not do what's right He said in his letter from Birmingham jail that there are two types of laws. There are the just and the unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. 
you talked about this at the end of the sermon, Lauren, and I wondered if you had any thoughts about what does that look like in a Christian's life? How does a Christian determine what is just and what is unjust? Well, you certainly can't do it by yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you have to do it together in community with other Christians um, so that you didn't decide for yourself that it was an unjust law, right? So it's about other people. Um, And I think it really can be a simple question, right? Um, What laws are treating people um, as anything less than God's beloved, right? What laws are treating people in such a way that um, would not allow them um, to live into the vision that Jesus calls us into, right? We were talking a lot about how when Jesus said you should love God and neighbor, um, that the neighborly laws that Jesus was calling up from Leviticus 19 uh, were not just about, you know, acts of charity, right? Just treating people with being nice to them by offering them a cup of water, um, but calling them um, into a different societal vision about the way we're to treat people. Um, And I think we can measure what is unjust um, by thinking about the way that um, it treats certain people. And and hearing their stories to come full circle, Right. right? I mean, listening to the stories of immigrants will tell you that our immigration laws are unjust. Um, and you don't have to be a legal scholar or a biblical scholar mm-hmm. to hear the stories of immigrants um, and say, that's not right. Um, I mean, one of the things I think about uh, kind of um, in regard to this is in regards to whether things are possible or impractical mm-hmm. um, or not is... Do you think that things would stay the same if, let's not even say 100%, if even 90% of the churches in this country stood up and pressed the United States government to accept refugees Mm -hmm. and to provide uh, for immigrants Mm -hmm. in our country? Neither political party could stand against 90% of the Christian churches in this, even just the Christians, mm-hmm. does not even include our interfaith brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. But if just the Christian churches, 75 to 90% of them said, you know what? Our Bible teaches us to love the immigrant and to welcome the stranger. And we see laws that aren't doing that and we want you to change them. Mm-hmm. Um, both sides of the aisle would have to do something. And that is the example of this, uh, of John 5, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we can't, one church can't do it. Mm-hmm. One sect of Christianity can't do it. Mm-hmm. Everyone has to assume the gospel vision. Everyone has to say, you know what? This is what scripture teaches us. This is, the, this is what the teachings of Jesus look like. Well, uh, and we're going to take it seriously. How is it that when you say that, it, it seems to me like, oh, wow, so you're trying to, we actually, 90% of our churches don't even really follow the gospel, right? Uh, How have we gotten into this place where uh, our churches have been willing to be co-opted by a law that is not God's law, right? Mm -hmm. Um, To co-opt who we are and what we believe and be so so afraid to stand for for what God is calling us to stand for together. And you're right, it is possible. We have power together. One of the easiest tests for justice, Jesus just gives us Mm -hmm. in this passage too. Mm -hmm. Like, 
Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength, depending on which gospel you're reading, all your mind. <laughs> um, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That if something, anything, whether it's a law, whether it's uh, somebody asking you to do something, whether it's a practice, how you spend your money, where you um, spend your time, if any of that violates either of those two commandments, in Jesus's view, it's unjust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you want someone to right. do that to you? Right. Mm-hmm. If you were fleeing whatever violence or death, trying to find a life for yourself and your family, would you want someone to deport you back to your country? And if not, then you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. Right. And those are the paramount concerns to you, right? Mm-hmm. Like those two laws are the, the, the bars that things have to cross. Yeah. And if they, if, they, if they get over those bars, then it's, then it's just. But we're so tempted to ask other questions like, well, is it practical <laughs> to like let these people come live here? Is it safe? Is it How can better? a nation state survive if right. it opens its borders? Will there be yeah. enough resources? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we have these questions of scarcity and like resource when the, the question that Jesus puts before us is, are you loving God and are you loving your neighbor? This has been Greenwood Forest. See you next time.